0: Transferring wealth successfully starts with asking yourself questions that will give your family a better life now and for generations to come. In this podcast, financial professionals John and Michael from Copper Beach Financial Group guide you through eye-opening questions to help you discover the truth about your wealth. Now, on to the show.
1: Hello and welcome to The Truth About Wealth with John and Michael Priest of Copper Beach Financial Group. John, how are you? you great. How are you, Eric? I'm doing fantastic. I know that you have a return guest on the show today. Michael, you're bringing back a guest from the last podcast. So listening audience, the last podcast was a great foundation for, I mean, a lot of knowledge was passed to the audience. Plus, it's a foundation for what they're going to be talking about today, which brings me to Michael. What are you guys talking about today? Well, we have Chris Graham back
2: on the podcast. How you doing, Chris?
3: Good. Good to be back.
2: Excellent. Hey, Chris.
3: Good to yes, see you, so Chris-
2: Chris Graham is the CEO and founder of Crown Capital Investments, and and on part one of our adventure here with Chris, we talked a little bit about uh, the private equity world, the alternative investing world, and and we wanted to pick up Chris with with this part two. We touched on it a little bit in the first episode, but this concept of again, this is this is an asset class that a lot of people that we work with have heard about, but they're not really sure. It's a very complicated world. And I think where we might want to start today is if somebody were to ask you about investing in this world, what, what, are, the, what are the things or questions that they should be asking the fund manager or asking their advisor uh, about a recommendation that might be made to them in this space?
3: I think if somebody introduced me to a fund said, I think this might be a good investment for you. I mean, first of all, if it's, invested, if it's advised to me by an, or, or, uh, an investment advisor or something like that, sure. the, the Seem Tlaib says something that I think is uh, it's pretty iconic. He says, if you want to get advice, then ask me for advice. And then afterwards, ask them what they do, right? <laughs> so a lot of times the advice you get from the doctor will be very different than what the doctor actually does. The advice you get from the financial advisor will be very different than what the advisor actually does. So ask them both for what they're doing as well as what they're advising. A lot of times those things are a mismatch, um, uh, which is telling. So I would ask the the advisor if he has money in the fund, first of all. But the second thing that I would do is say, okay, uh, consistent with what we talked about last time, what is the investment thesis? And Michael, you actually made me think about this. Um, How in detail should that thesis be? And I think you should keep asking why about that thesis until you understand why that thesis makes good investment sense today, right? When we talk about some of the macro effects that can impact uh, an investment and an investment thesis, you know, um, federal rates, are we in a high or increasing rate environment versus a low or decreasing rate environment? How would that impact this thesis, right? Where are um, the, the companies in a, in a, cycle of the macro economy? What's the math behind what they're doing? Simply to say that we're good at managing consumer or you know retail companies probably isn't enough of an investment thesis. That's just a skill set. It's not about an investment. Now, that skill set can be part of the thesis, but I think it needs to be part of that. So I would keep asking why about the investment thesis until I really understood why this made sense for me as an investor. The other thing that we're very careful about, we build a lot of uh, time, we spend a lot of time, energy, and effort about building low-risk profiles. So I would ask very specifically about how much debt does the fund carry? Right. Debt correlates one-to-one with bankruptcy. It's amazing. More debt, more bankruptcy. It's a one-to-one correlation. Um, And so we believe in lower leverage, but ours is drastically low. I mean, you just won't find private investments that have leverage as low as ours, we are at one times our profit in debt right now. The average, I saw a Forbes article, average for private equity is six times profit. Six times. Um, On deals over a certain equity size, larger deals, the debt is seven times. And for less or smaller deals, it's five times on average. But the average is six. We're at one Right? And the reason they take high leverage is because they, they can buy more companies with less capital. And then as the companies generate cash and pay down that debt, it increases the yield, but it's increased yield with a much higher risk onboarding process. What we have found is if we take low leverage, like one, one and a half times profit, we pay it off as fast as we can. And then we borrow another one and a half times pay it off as fast as we can. Then over the same length of time, with the same growth on the businesses themselves, we get 94% of the yield of a high leverage model with 1 of the risk. So we have a different way of doing it, but I would ask, that's an important question. How much debt do you build into your model? Like what's your carrying debt? Because if they get stuck in a high, uh, an increasing interest rate environment, just like the Silicon Valley bank did, right? You could end up with asset values collapsing due to the refinancing need of the fund itself. So I'd ask about debt. Um, And then I would ask about the team and their experience and their process of engaging with the companies. There's also a very specific difference between what we call a buyout fund. That's what we are. We're a buyout fund. We buy the companies and we run them versus a minority investment or non-buyout fund. So non-buyout funds put money into companies for somebody else who's already on board to manage versus buy the companies and manage themselves. Two different models. I'm not saying one's better than the other. Um, We just have a system that works well for us to manage these companies. But minority funds can do well. Um, In that case, you want to make sure there's a a lot of robust process around evaluating management teams, right? So those are probably the biggest questions I would ask.
2: Yeah, that's that that's great information i mean with the, the debt in particular and and even you know how the debt can be structured within the fund i mean it's it's just it's a very complicated word you really have to be working with qualified people that do this every day and hopefully if you're out there listening working with an advisor in this space that they have experience you know i would even ask them what their experience is in terms of evaluating a fund at this level and what their experience is and their process. So it's, uh, you know, it's just a, there's a lot, lot of variables here to manage.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Layers, layers of them. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, and obviously like most things, fees are important. You don't want to ask about, you know, the, the inherent fee structure. We have an interesting fee structure. Most funds uh, employ what they call a two and 22% management fee paid annually It's 2% of the assets under management. So 2% of the value of the fund and then twenty percent of the profit at the back end when you liquidate. Well, that two percent of the assets under management. Um, what I wanted to do was to neutralize any valuation issues. So we are a one and a half of acquisition value. We buy a company for ten million. We get a one hundred fifty thousand dollar fee. We grow that company to fifty million. It's still a one hundred fifty thousand dollar fee for as long as we own that company. So we are a non mark to market fee structure. So over time, as the companies grow in value, our fee actually slides down to very low sustaining fee, like less than 1% to sustain the fund.
4: Chris, this is John. How, how do you how do you evaluate the companies that you approach? Is it You said you have a system, but what's your instincts on these companies? Is it a certain sector or the sectors don't matter? Or is it a certain uh, age group of the business owner that you're looking for? It, it, how, how do you how do you look at a company and say this is this is a company we need to invest into?
3: Yeah, so it starts with our filters and our investment thesis. Right. So our investment thesis is very mathematical, and it is um, based on demographic shifts, um, not just in the United States, but you know for us investing is mostly in the United States, and it's based on the baby boomer exit. Baby boomers were an incredibly entrepreneurial group. Seventy seven million baby boomers. 4% of baby boomers have achieved 3 million of net worth. Wow. So call it 3.6 million rich baby boomers. To achieve that level of net worth, primarily they owned their own businesses. So one statistic is, there's I've seen it a couple different times, and it's all in a range, but between 12 and 14 million baby boomer owned small businesses in America today. It's huge, right? huge number of businesses, 14 million of them. Now, what we have found is that at under a certain level, call it $2 million, right around that range, there is really insufficient management in those businesses. And the baby boomer is really running the business himself. And over about $5 million profit, we get institutional buyers looking to buy in that, that space. So the pricing starts to spiral up. But there are a ton of businesses between 2 and $5 million that are baby boomer-owned, where the baby boomer has no succession plan, no kids that they think could run the company, no real opportunity to sell it to a bigger fund for higher multiples. They want to retire. They tried to grow it. They haven't succeeded in growing it. So we get really good purchase multiples on really great, long lasting, durable companies in that space. So we target baby boomer owned companies without a transition plan um, that, uh, uh have you know, been very uh, had long term sustainable profitability. Right. Then, of course, you know we do diligence them to death. I mean, we do a forensic accounting basically for three years. We start with the checking account, and we move to the you know, profit loss statements, to the tax returns. We do a three year forensic scrub of the company.
4: Oh, I know. I know how you think. I guess I yeah, see based on that. my accounting background. <laughs> I right? know yeah. how you think, yeah. uh, Chris? Real, real quickly, this might be a little curveball for you, but. AI seems to be in the press daily now. How would you consider using AI to evaluate uh, companies to purchase? Or is AI a factor in what you're doing to go down, down the road of uh, success for your organization? Is that something you're looking at?
3: Yeah, I've played with it. Um, I, I, what I have kind of figured out for today, now I think it has great potential, but for today, it doesn't really add much value to okay. um, because the data it pulls, really what it's pulling is our own human knowledge. Like it's not creating new knowledge and it's not even really creating new insights from that knowledge. You know, the AI that we see today is just a a hyper search function on the internet. It's pulling that knowledge and repeating it back to you in maybe a very pleasant way, but it's not um, creating or analyzing knowledge. And the trick is that you don't know where it got the knowledge from. So it's not necessarily trustworthy right so we've tried it a little bit just to see what it would do but um found it to be not much more valuable than our processes and also somewhat uh, problematic in areas yeah
2: yeah not yet it's not doing those things yet yeah but, not yet maybe, exactly <laughs> maybe in the future uh chris we talked a lot about debt and and how for certain funds that can you know it's definitely an important question if you're analyzing an opportunity that you should be asking the manager or your, or your advisor that you're working with but i'm wondering if there is a uh, a pro or a benefit to the rising interest rate environment i.e a place uh, or an asset class more private credit which i don't think is really where you guys hang your hat but i'm wondering if you have any thoughts on on that sort of uh sub asset class within alternatives
3: yeah yeah i so Private credit versus private equity is the same as credit versus equity. Credit sits ahead of equity. So it takes less risk. Um, It also gets less return, Um, but it's a pretty good place to sit. Um, It might've been better earlier right now. You're getting squeezed a little bit because you can get some rates from um, dividends and and, uh, treasuries that are kind of squeezing up against the rates that you might get in in invest financing or some cre- private credit. But what happens at private credit when industries get squeezed in a recession, these funds get access to acquiring these companies at really discounted prices. So it can be a very interesting space to be in. Gallo Capital is a big one in that space. They're um, their private credit uh, functioning machine. We actually built our model to mirror private credit, but to be private equity so we can get higher yields. And the difference is this most private equity does not generate um, uh, cash flow annually in the fund or deploy that cash flow, right? It's all about paying off the debt. All the cash flow gets to pay off the debt. Because we have low leverage, we actually generate cash flow more like private credit. So that's the difference. Private credit is that debt that is pulling cash off the company versus private equity is the one servicing that cash obligation. Well, for us, because we eliminate the credit component, we function as a blend, higher yields like private equity, but also generating cash flow that we can redeploy to new companies as we go. But I like private credit in an increasing interest rate environment. Anything that generates current cash is valuable, more valuable.
2: Yeah. It's, it, but, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry.
3: Well, you can't generate current cash if the debt is soaking up all your cash, right?
4: Literally. Right,
2: yeah. right. Yeah, it's... it's you mentioned kind of the capital stack or priority uh, of of sort of returns that's a really interesting uh analysis to go through that i think some investors don't necessarily consider but you're right i mean from a, a debtor uh perspective um you know you pay your debts first before the equity investors are able to participate and i think what you know it sounds like what you guys are you're trying to sit almost in between almost like preferred stock versus common equity or or going up into the full debt Side, yeah, actually, know, actually, it's
3: brilliant that you said that. So it's it's uh, so just to be clear for the don't say brilliant, don't say it's brilliant. You know, yeah, brilliant. <laughs> you're no, you'll never be able to live with them
4: dude. No, come on, really? Does G two go go with that
3: flow? Come on. <laughs> well, so I so I said this before. Like, uh, if you are private um, uh, credit, then you're ahead of equity. But if there is no private credit, and there's only one times debt, then the equity sits right behind that one times debt. It basically takes on the risk profile of blended bank debt and private credit, right? I mean, if you had no debt and you were all equity, a certain portion of your equity would have a risk profile equal to bank debt. Yeah. So how far up you are in the cap stack determines your risk profile. Well, because we're only taking one times debt to profit and you could take up to five times, that means there's four times of profit level debt that we're not taking that actual equity gets to participate in at bank risk type profile. So it does act like PREF equity in a lot of ways. So I usually analyze two things. What's the risk you're taking versus the yield you're getting? I think a lot of times people talk about what are my returns without reference to the risk they took to get those returns.
2: Oh, yeah. No, that's you know risk adjusted return is really important metric to it's look the, at. Yeah. It's the key,
3: right? Yeah. I mean, if you take... You know, 60% risk to get 30% returns, do that a hundred times and see how it works out for you,
4: right? <laughs> yeah.
3: Right? I mean, what I'd rather do is take 9% risk to get 20% returns over and over and over. Um, and that's really that low debt profile with a higher yield profile of private equity.
4: Yeah, that's word risk. Uh, we talked at the first uh, podcast with you. That there's cycles. I guess you have to watch for interest rate cycles uh, to get you know that value based uh, look. And I know you stay on the value side with the economy where we are today. I just saw the numbers came out this morning. Our, our growth rate was one point one this quarter, so it dropped from two point six for the previous quarter, year end quarter. Uh, do do you see a shift for your success in your companies? Does it affect? Does the market affect your companies greatly, or is that something? As an investor has to look at uh, from just a, a point in time issue.
3: Well, so it, it does affect us. I mean, we're, we're in the economy like anybody else. Right. We're diversified, so it doesn't affect the portfolio as much as it would in any one company. And I'll give you an example. Last year, we had one of our companies suffered a 76% increase in its cost of goods sold. Now, it still made money, but it made dramatically less than it did the year before. Overall, the portfolio still grew, though, Right. And that's one of the differences in a cash generating private equity portfolio versus a high debt, no cash generating private equity portfolio. You sure. suffer a, um, a, a pullback in one of your companies, all of a sudden you're tripping bank covenants and there's foreclosures. You have all kinds of issues you have to work through. Right. But think about this quarter over quarter, John, that's more than a 50% drop, right? Sure. 2.6 to 1.1, more than a 50% drop. Um, so, our last year, I think our uh, annual returns were around 11% um, on a conservative valuation basis. And then from Q4, or end of Q3 to through Q1, we acquired 31% more profit through acquisitions with only 7% more capital raise. So, think wow. about that.
4: Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And
3: roughly, and that at 24% increase in profit net of your capital raise. So we look at something we call EBITDA to invested capital or profit to invested capital, how much profit is being generated for every dollar invested. Um, And so the way our fund works, very much like a Buffett fund would be, we kind of drift along a little bit sideways, generating cash. And then that cash goes to buy new companies and we shoot up then of course, those new companies plus the old companies generate even more cash, wait a period, accumulate cash, buy some more companies. So there's this ever-escalating growth curve within, within our fund that's pretty pretty fun to watch, actually.
4: So from a legacy standpoint, when you look at, and I know you're you're very savvy in the PPLI private placement life insurance world, like we are, this would be a great legacy asset for that type of a structure because it is generational in focus on the PPLI side. So, so if you were going to look at a portfolio in that type of a strategy, what percentage would you put in private equity from a risk standpoint among other asset classes? What, what would that be?
3: Depends on the family. So the, the bigger the wealth, I think more in private equity. I I mean, I I, I can, again, the Nassim Tlaib saying, ask the advisor what he's doing himself. Right. I'm in a little different position and I believe just like Buffett and Munger, I should be the chief risk taker because I'm running the fund. Um, so I can tell you I have about 60%, 65% of my net worth in the fund. I have about 3% in a little bit of buffer cash. And the rest of it really is in uh, personal use assets. You know, It's not, it's not in the public markets. So I am all in on the fund because I kind of know how it works. I know how it compounds. Um, and I think private placement life insurance is perfect for this, because it also does generate annual K-1s. Now it's years before we have tax impact because we have depreciation and amortization that as we buy right. companies keep cycling through, but at some point um, that, that that mitigates that tax benefit mitigates and also you have these K-1s that are producing taxable income. It's perfect for PPLI. PPLI is a perfect place to house this. And if you're a smaller investor, maybe you'd be at you know between ten and twenty percent. and if you're a bigger investor, I think you just like the hedge or just like the endowment funds, you'd push up to a much greater portion
4: of your yeah, they're like forty to fifty percent some of those endowments even, sixty even, yeah, even yeah. more yeah, I, yeah it blew it blew me away when I saw that. I could not believe it, but I was never in that world. Yep. when I started to investigate it i was I was absolutely blown away by the magnitude of the alternative world. In these particular endowments. It's yeah. uh well, that's why able- you're seeing
3: and, and look, pension funds don't have the same, they have a shorter term horizon than than endowment funds. So those endowment funds and family offices with long-term legacy perspective, right. they can take longer-term risk and they should be more heavily weighted towards private investments.
4: Yeah, it, it's it's just a, it's just a wonderful uh asset class to if you qualify for it, and I hope that so where in the industry adjusts for maybe have an opportunity for people that don't qualify at this point can qualify. Cause I think this is just an asset class that, that people just miss out on if they don't take advantage of it, because I think yeah. this has some growth opportunities long-term for families, especially the families that we work with. And you're right. very familiar with a lot of the families we work with because you're, you're a part of that, that design phase. Um, how would you look at, um, uh, enhancing your fund. I mean, is there anything else you could do to make your fund better than it is today or are you stay very strict to your to your processes?
3: I think we constantly make it better. I, you know, mostly through our own learning. Um, one thing that we do in our fund that's pretty unique is we have our leadership teams from each of the companies get together twice a year as like a peer group mentoring program. They share information, share challenges, um, and that has been very successful it does a couple of things. It develops relationships between the companies. So they are very comfortable reaching out to each other um, for help uh, or for cross selling or for you know strategic uh, new product launches. So there's a lot of collaboration between our portfolio that you don't really see in other private equity funds because again, they have a shorter duration a shorter timeline in which to execute. But our timeline is unlimited. And so twice a year in the spring and in the uh, fall, We get our leadership teams together for about a three-day kind of conference, and that conference is led. It's very specific. They have very specific uh, educational goals we're trying trying to achieve during that time period. So training our people and our leadership teams has been very helpful and valuable and something we continually try to improve on. That's been a big element of what we're trying to accomplish.
4: And I'm assuming you'll continue to recruit talent to your to your portfolio of managers. Am I Am I correct Yeah, you're...
3: yeah, both at the fund level. You know, right now I think we could um, almost almost double in our size, uh, number of companies we could manage with our current team. Not quite double, but maybe you know, eighty percent more. But we always want to find the best and brightest uh, and be prepared for growth.
4: Do you have what eleven? Uh, yeah we have about
3: 11 like or 12 that. people right now okay. um and our key people that really you know beyond admin key people that really manage in the portfolio there's three of us at the fund level and then that manage like that coaching aspect and then two in the in the portfolio on the ground you know in a more day-to-day roles where we need them
2: yeah chris i think we're running uh up against sort of the ends of the of our time here today but i i wanted to if I can ask your thoughts on, you know, I know that your uh a lot of your investment philosophy is maybe looking towards baby boomer type baby boomer owned companies. Uh, and you gave some statistics in terms of how large that segment is. Uh, obviously, there's going to be, you're not going to be able to, to provide a succession plan for all those companies. Uh, but I, I'm just more concerned about what you see in the global economy in terms of if, they don't have an outlet like a fund that you're sorting, of starting to develop and have developed. What other options are out there, and what do you, what do, you, what's your forecast for just the business owner community? Or because is it going to be more aggregation in terms of creating larger companies and not as many mom and pop owned companies as maybe there were in the past? I'm just interested to get your thoughts on that.
3: Yeah, you might. So here's, I read, there were several Wall Street Journal articles and several kind of business articles kind of at the beginning of this, quote, silver tsunami. And what it said was that most of these baby boomer owned businesses that do say less than 500,000 of net profit would simply close their doors. Nobody wants them. Uh, the kids don't want them. They all want to be internet influencers, right? Um, TikTok dancers or whatever it is. Right. Um, and the employees really can't afford them. And so I think you'll probably see an ever increasing rise, maybe smaller ESOPs. The problem with, uh, employee stock option planning employee buyout problem with it is it's an expensive process. And so at a certain level, it probably is too expensive for the company. So these companies at 500,000 of profit and less are really kind of stuck. and They don't have a lot of options. Um, I know there were several people who ran say a small grocery store or a gas station um and the offers to purchase those companies were basically equ- equivalent to the land value wow they just weren't buying the company they were just buying land um and they were just going to shut the doors of the business and then redevelop the land so it is a tough problem i don't know that there's any clear answers some of them can probably be rolled up um but in some ways, that's kind of how capitalism works, right? Certain aspects die off. I think if search funds, these you know, again, these young MBAs could come out and buy a big chunk of those smaller businesses like that from baby boomers, that would be a, a great um, accomplishment in our economy in, in total. Yeah, you know.
4: Chris, can you can you go global as well with your with your model?
3: We can. Uh, what we have found is that. Canada and Mexico, we'd like to be in South America, Central America, and all of North America. We have, we're have we in two countries right now. We've acquired 12 companies in seven states and two countries, so we're in Canada. Um, we have found that Europe and Central and South America and even Mexico, their private equity markets are so underdeveloped relative to what we have in the US that um, it's a much tougher climb to even figure out how you'd execute on a company You know, there's no uh, robust market of exchange. Like here we have, you know, a really robust business broker, investment banker type market just doesn't really exist outside the United States. Even in Europe, it doesn't really, it's just not, not robust, you know?
2: Yeah, that's interesting.
3: makes it harder. Yeah. But we I was down in Mexico last week with uh, one of our companies uh, services, some uh, big three automaker plants down in Mexico I am telling you, NAFTA has taken hold. Those plants are amazing. They're every bit as um, efficient and organized as plants oh, anywhere.
0: Yeah. yeah.
3: And so w- some of those suppliers to those plants down in Mexico, we'd really like to start taking a deeper look at them. We've made some relationships while we were down there. Um, and so I think that there will be opportunity. And maybe the you know, non-cartel border county <laughs> areas of Mexico. we can get.
2: Yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a good due diligence question to ask. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
3: How many cartel members do you
2: know? Yeah. Well, Chris, listen, this has been uh, an awesome two podcasts, and and I, I, I'm very confident we'll have you on again in the future. But I wanted to thank you for your time. I know you're a busy man, and, um, you know, it's been great to talk to you. It's been great to have you on. So thank you so much.
3: My so pleasure. It, really? it was great to
1: be here. Yeah, so thanks, John. I I am happy to come back anytime you guys want. Uh, we'd love to have you back, no doubt. Again, great conversation, uh, gentlemen. Uh, so much information in here. Michael, give folks contact info so they could reach out and learn more uh, about your guests and, and what you guys do.
2: Absolutely, you can you can reach us on our website. It is www.cbfgllc.com. You can call us on uh, at the office here, area code 856-988-8300. And, of course, we are on social media, LinkedIn. You can always reach out to us
1: uh, via those platforms as well. Fantastic. Guys, again, great podcast. Thank you so much. And, of course, the last thank you goes to the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Truth About Wealth podcast with John and Michael Brees. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the Subscribe Now button below. This way when John and Michael come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. We humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it, and leave a review as this actually does help other people find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Copper Beach Financial Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day, and we'll see you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to the Truth About Wealth Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Copper Beach Financial Group. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider or with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.
5: This material is for informational purposes only. Neither APFS nor its representatives provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Please consult your own tax, legal, or accounting professional before making any decisions. Copper Beach is not affiliated with American Portfolios Financial Services, Inc. and American Portfolios Advisors, Inc. Securities offered through American Portfolio Financial Services, Inc., a member of FINRA SIPC, investment advisory and financial planning services offered through American Portfolio Advisors, Inc., an SCC-registered investment advisor. These opinions are subject to change at any time without notice. Any comments or postings are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute an offer or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or other financial instruments. Readers should conduct their own review and exercise judgment prior to investing. Investments are not guaranteed, involve risk, and may result in a loss of principal. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Investments are not suitable for all types of investors. Copper Beach is an unaffiliated entity of American Portfolios Financial Services, Inc. and American Portfolios Advisors, Inc. Any opinion expressed in this forum is not the opinions of American Portfolio Financial Services, Inc. and American Portfolio Advisors, Inc., and have not been reviewed by the firm for completeness or accuracy. American Portfolios and Copper Beach Financial Group are not affiliated with any other named business entities mentioned.